Well, hi everybody. Uh, hi everybody. I'm back here to finish off our series on Habakkuk, and uh, this last passage finishes out the the story in a way that's that's kind of interesting, and it has to do with the way that perspective changes as Habakkuk sees what God is doing, even though it isn't what he wants. And so I've been thinking about people whose stories are a little bit like that. And so I just wanted to start by telling you the story of Tim Hansel. He was a Stanford football player in the 1960s. He then became a teacher and he ran a wilderness camp uh, for kids after that. Well, he was a very, very active guy. And one climb that he was taking on North Palisade, which is about 14,000 feet high, in 1974, he uh, had his crampons, the, the spikes on his, his shoes, balled up with snow, and he slipped. He tried to arrest his fall with uh, his axe and failed. And uh, according to an LA Times story from 1987 that I found summarizing what had happened, it said, he flipped over a cornice and landed on the back of his neck five stories below on solid ice. The fall crushed vertebra, collapsed spinal discs, and shot fragments of bone into his neck. Miraculously, he survived with nearly full movement of his arms and legs. Okay, so initially he's able to be active. In fact, he walked 20 miles to get back to uh, wherever they, they had parked or camped. But uh, he spent 35 years in severe chronic pain, which he described as far beyond anything he'd experienced in football. And I read about uh, news stories talking about uh, referring to him missing time in, on the football field because of a shoulder break and uh, missing time because of a knee injury that sounded like a, a fracture of some kind. So this is a guy who knew pain. So an LA Times article from 1987 described what happened to him this way. He flipped over a cornice and landed on the back of his neck, five stories below on solid ice. The fall crushed vertebra, collapsed spinal discs, and shot fragments of bone into his neck. Miraculously, he survived with nearly full movement of his arms and legs. So he was initially able to be active, and so he continued to to do camps for a while, although on a, a more limited basis, but he spent 35 years in severe chronic pain, which he described as far beyond anything he had experienced in football. And he had the usual football injuries during his four years as a starter there. Pain is inevitable, but misery is optional. We cannot avoid pain, but we can avoid joy. So here we are, closing the book of Habakkuk, which has a lot to do with oncoming pain that can't be avoided. Habakkuk had seen wrongdoing and justice in Judah, and he complained about it, and he got God's reply, yes, I see the wrongdoing and injustice, and yes, I'm going to do something about it. But the way God's going to address it, <laughs> it is by using an even more brutal, wrong, unjust nation. And Habakkuk, in this book, has been processing that hard reality. And Pastor Tim said, early in last week's sermon, that God uses trials and circumstances to display his glory. This week's text really focuses on that glory 
unfolding it in three ways that I see. God's authority over nature, God's authority over nations, and God's authority over me. So if we take the first one, that God's power is displayed in his authority over nature. Verse 8 says, Were you angry with the rivers, Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode your horses and your chariots to victory? The first thing these verses bring to mind is a set of specific instances in which God has displayed his power specifically over rivers and the sea. So if we go back to the book of Exodus, chapter 14, verses 21 and 22 say, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The continuity of the water was broken by God's power. The winds were controlled by God and used against the natural power and inclination of the sea, insurmountable by mere human effort. Joshua 4, 23 and 24 speaks of a different incident. It says, For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful, and so that you always might fear the Lord your God. So understanding God's authority, according to these passages, requires remembering what he has done in the past. And that's easy to say. Sometimes it's much harder to do. So what has he done in your past that you need to remember? We're so quick to forget or to turn a reminder of victory into just a story of the past. Now, my wife Karen and I celebrated 20 years of marriage this week, and we will both tell you that God's work is all over our marriage. What I mean by that is that without God's active and ongoing intervention, our marriage would have failed. And without remembering God's intervention, we would have lost much of the joy we now know because of what he's taken us through. So we have ongoing opportunities to remember where he's carried us through the river and the sea of difficulty that sometimes we brought on ourselves and sometimes were due to circumstances out of our control. But I want to add one more way of looking at these verses. And some commentators note some similarities for the words for river and sea in Hebrew and the names of some Canaanite deities. Now, I'm not convinced that this is what the writer had in mind as the primary meaning of the text. Habakkuk isn't talking about God's anger against Canaanite deities. He's talking about justice being brought to Judah by an entirely different pagan culture. But as a secondary point, Perhaps this is what's being alluded to, what's being shown about God, his sovereignty over other powers. So how would that work? Well, let me give you an example in English of a homograph. So that's where two different words have the same spelling. An example of a homograph in English would be bear, which could be a big hungry mammal, or it could mean carrying something. Go bears. 
So let me, let me show you, if I write a line of poetry and I say, growling under the weight of the cross I bear, if you're a non-native English speaker, you might say, oh, well, I've got growling and that's what a bear does, so maybe he's talking about being a bear. No, that, as native English speakers, we go, that's, those two words aren't defining each other. Just because I use the word growling and the word bear in the same line, it doesn't mean that I'm talking about a bear. I'm talking about carrying my cross. But obviously I'm playing with the words to emphasize a moment of what I'd call grumpiness. So I see bears as sometimes lighthearted, but sometimes pretty grumpy. And in this line, I'm trying to connect those two ideas. I'm bearing my cross, but I'm not doing it joyfully. I'm doing it grumpily. So let's go back to what Habakkuk is writing and see what he says. Were you angry with the rivers, Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode your horses and your chariots to victory? God, you control the rivers and the seas. You rule over them, even as some humans worship them. Now, this sounds a little bit like what Habakkuk has already said in chapter 2, verse 20. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. There's no natural phenomenon on earth that mustn't be silent before him. And there's no mm, alleged supernatural power on earth that can speak when God says be silent. He is sovereign. He has authority. He has power over all of them. If we keep moving, we continue to see God in this powerful way. Verse 9 says, you uncovered your bow. You called for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. Torrents of water swept by. The deep roared and lifted its waves on high. This text is including all the advanced weaponry of the day, right? We've got horses and chariots. We've got bows and arrows. God is fully armed. He's locked and loaded. This reminds me of a passage from Psalm 74 that says, But God is my king from long ago. He brings salvation on the earth. It was you who split open the sea by your power. It was you who broke the heads of the monster in the waters. It was you who crushed the heads of Leviathan and gave it as food to the creatures of the desert. It was you who opened up springs and streams. You dried up the ever-flowing rivers. The psalmist is talking about God's power over nature, specifically the waters. Notice he's also speaking of God as his salvation. The psalmist isn't glorifying God's power for power's sake. He's saying God's purposes are good and right. He uses his might in the right way, if you will. Psalm 74, 16 and 17, the day is yours and yours also the night. You established the sun and the moon. It was you who set all the boundaries of the earth. You made both summer and winter. The psalmist is continuing to speak of God's supremacy over the sun and moon, the day and night, the boundaries of the earth, the seasons. And so we have here in verse 11 in Habakkuk, Sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spear. 
So Habakkuk is painting a picture of a divine warrior, God himself, in a similar scope. Nothing on the earth, nothing below the earth, nothing above the earth can stand against his might. So my question to you is, do you believe that God has authority over everything in nature? Is there something that you see as being outside his power to intervene? On the other hand, do you see his authority as something you can appropriate somehow for your own purposes? Because that's not what Habakkuk is saying. He's saying God keeps his own counsel and does what's right according to his own plan. So how does knowing that God has authority over all nature change how you live? Can you say with confidence what the psalmist said, but God is my king from long ago. He brings salvation on the earth. Now we move into the next section. God's power is displayed in his authority over nations. Verse 12, in wrath you strode through the earth. In anger you threshed the nations. You came out to deliver your people to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. With his own spear, you pierced his head. When his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding. God has turned the tables on the oppressors. You could think of Goliath, the giant. He's taunting Israel, who are afraid to face him, yet being faced by David. God's anointed one, one of them, he had no natural chance of success. He's armed with a sling and stones against this armored giant. And yet, David turns the tables, or that is, God turns the tables on David's and Israel's behalf. And David ends up severing Goliath's head with Goliath's own sword. The Psalms speak of this kind of turning of the tables, or what Shakespeare called in Hamlet, uh, hoist with his own petard, which is, you know, 17th century speak for blown off the ground with his own bomb. The nations, the psalmist says in Psalm 915, have fallen into the pit they have dug. Their feet are caught in the net they have hidden. The Lord is known by his acts of justice. The wicked are ensnared by the work of their hands. The wicked go down to the realm of the dead, all the nations that forget God. But God will never forget the needy. The hope of the afflicted will never perish. Habakkuk 3.15 says, You trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. Where did we hear about the riding of horses against the sea? Oh yeah, in verse 8 where it says, did you rage against the sea when you rode your horses and your chariots to victory? This repetition is a, a way in Hebrew poetry to conclude a section, namely God's power displayed over nature and nations. And the rest of this chapter, the rest of this sermon, the rest of this book is going to be about God's power displayed over me. In this case, Habakkuk is the me, as he contemplates what he has heard from and what he is seeing from God. And I have to tell you that when you and I are not seeing how God is victorious, we're not looking at a big enough picture. 
And that's what Habakkuk has been reminding himself and us about. It's, it's not to say that it's easy for us to hear how God is working all the time, because it's often not how we want him to work. But we're about to get to Habakkuk taking this all very personally. Habakkuk 3, verse 16. I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. This is an amazing poetic description of absolute terror. That banging sound in my ears is my own heart pounding. I can't keep my teeth from chattering and my mouth from gaping in horror. My bones got soft. They liquefied. My legs wobble like they're made of gelatin. And yet I will wait. What's he going to wait for? For justice to be done to Babylon. Habakkuk isn't going to see this happen during his lifetime. Let's keep moving. Chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. These verses describe total famine, overwhelming poverty. They describe reason for hopelessness. And yet, that's not Habakkuk's response at this point. Now, I want to read you the last verse of a hymn written in England over 200 years ago. It was written by a man, William Cooper, who had been shattered by difficulties in his life. He suffered from mental illness and attempted to take his life multiple times. And after some of those attempts, he was brought into the care of a couple who loved him. After the husband died, the widow continued to care for this man. And he was brought into contact with John Newton, the former slave ship master who had become a Christian abolitionist. John Newton was the writer of the hymn Amazing Grace. Cooper was a talented poet, and he wrote this verse of a hymn, and he based it on this passage from Habakkuk, chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. The vine nor fig tree neither, their wanted fruit shall bear. Though all the fields should wither, nor flocks nor herds be there, yet God, the same abiding, his praise shall tune my voice. For while in him confiding, I cannot but rejoice.
Now, Cooper never lived to experience total freedom from mental illness. On the contrary, it was something that beset him his whole life. Tim Hansel never lived to experience the healing of the terrible damage done to his body. Habakkuk never lived to see justice done to Babylon. So what happened to them? How was it that they were able to experience peace? They all encountered God, and it changed how they understood the world and how they understood what God could provide for them in sorrow and in difficulty and in pain. Here's how Habakkuk closes this, this book. Verse 19, The Sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. Huh. I, I like this picture. I like it when I think about Tim Hansel because I can't think of anything he'd love more than being able to have the feet of a deer and spring in the heights that he loved to climb. The heights are the place in Habakkuk's mind that can best be defended. The heights are the place where you get a perspective that isn't available from down below. How does Habakkuk get to the heights? God put him there. And then God sustains him, giving him feet that allow him to walk in the heights. So he didn't work his way there, and he didn't keep himself there. The Christian doesn't reach the heights and receive God's approval. Instead, the Christian in Christ receives God's grace and the gift of walking those heights. In Christ, we have God with us, fully human, but also fully God. He has incredible mastery over nature. Let me pick an example. Mark chapter 4, verses 39 to 41. If you're keeping up with the devotionals, you've already seen this. He got up, rebuked the wind, this is Jesus, and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. It fell silent before whom? Jesus, the God-man. Verse 40, he said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. This isn't an early miracle. They've already seen him do stuff, and yet his total mastery of a terrifying storm still impresses them and causes them to be in awe. He had authority over people as well, though. Nobody ever got the best of Jesus, no matter how often they tried. It was always Jesus's plan that prevailed. Luke chapter 20, verse 26 gives one example. They were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public. And astonished by his answer, they became silent. Once again, who becomes silent? Everything becomes silent in the presence of the Holy God, in this person, the Holy God-man. So think about this situation for a moment. The leaders and the rulers can't lay their hands on Jesus. But neither at this time does he bring final judgment on them. Instead, he lives out, he follows the Father's plan willingly. 
because he is in perfect trust and harmony with the Father, because he knows the Father. Habakkuk is oddly in a similar state. He's submitting to God's will, even though he knows it's not the outcome that he wants in his own understanding. Habakkuk has come to be able to rejoice in the person of God because he has encountered God. That rejoicing is in the midst of sorrow for his nation and his people. In Philippians chapter 3, starting at verse 20, here's what Paul says. Our citizenship is in heaven. We eagerly wait a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, King Jesus King, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, whose power is that? That's the power of God, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Is William Cooper going to suffer from mental illness? He is not. Is Tim Hansel going to be crippled? He is not. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Continuing in Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. You don't have to spit vindication. You don't have to spit harshness. You don't have to spit false justice because the Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We've got work to do in remembering so that we can give thanks, but then God is the one who works out things, who guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus rather than the circumstances that surround us. Joy and difficulty is only possible by an encounter with the God who lives. The legalist doesn't understand this and says, I have difficulties in my life and I deserve these difficulties because I haven't followed all the rules. Or worse, the legalist says, I deserve not to have my present difficulties because I think I have followed all the rules. God's on the hook to bless me. The prosperity addict says, I deserve to have better than my current difficulties because God promised that I'd always have sunshine and not trouble. Or worse, the prosperity addict says, I must have these current difficulties because I don't have enough faith. Now, the follower of Christ lives in a different way, thinks in a different way, depends on God in a different way. The follower of Christ doesn't ignore the difficulty around him or her. The follower of Christ doesn't panic because of the difficulty around him or her or in him or her. Instead, the follower of Christ trusts and relies on God who has shown his love for us in Christ, whose difficulty was far greater than anything you or I have experienced. Unlike the legalist, Jesus really did follow all God's rules and was in perfect harmony with God's will. Unlike the prosperity addict, Jesus knew God's plan was more important than his own comfort and benefit. Now, before I close, 
I just, I want to continue to give you thanks. I thank God for you who have supported the, the ministry of Church of the Valley in this difficult time. And if you are part of Church of the Valley and are growing here, you can give as you feel led by going online to give via PayPal or by mailing a check to the address on the screen. As I always say, do not give under compunction. This is entirely a thing that we do because we've experienced the living God and he has transformed how we think about our circumstances, including about what we invest in with our money. Let me pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it's true. I thank you that it's not just theoretical, but it's living and active. And it reads us, by which I mean your word causes us to be able to examine ourselves, our motives and our actions, our thoughts and our values, as well as our behaviors, and say, am I in harmony with what you have for me? And I pray that you will continue to lead us individually and collectively as COV to more and more see your face and become transformed into the likeness of your son so that we can see our circumstances in the way you intend us to see them. I thank you for those who have given and those who give. I thank you for what they're giving and I ask that you would use it to make much of Jesus Christ in Santa Clara. And I pray that you would give us wisdom as we continue to serve you here in our valley. In Jesus' name, amen. By way of closing, let me read you something from the last letter that I know of that Dietrich Bonhoeffer sent to the pastors that he had trained and mentored in secret in Nazi Germany in defiance of an order to shut down. So here's a shutdown order that ought to be defied. Many, many of these pastors had already been identified by the German government after their training and had been sent to the Russian front to meet their fates there. Many had already died. Bonhoeffer himself was unable to send more after this letter because he was arrested and imprisoned shortly uh, after sending this, I believe. He says, Joy abides with God, and it comes down from God and embraces spirit, soul, and body. And where this joy has seized a person, there it spreads, there it carries one away, there it bursts open closed doors. The quote continues, A sort of joy exists that knows nothing at all of the heart's pain, anguish, and dread it does not last. It can only numb a person for the moment. The joy of God has gone through the poverty of the manger and the agony of the cross. That is why it is invincible and irrefutable. It does not deny the anguish when it is there, but it finds God in the midst of it. In fact, precisely there. It does not de deny a grave sin, but finds Forgiveness, in precisely this way, it looks death straight in the eye, but it finds life precisely within it. The joy of God does not deny the anguish that is there. 
The joy of God finds God in the midst of anguish because God is there. And my prayer for you and my prayer for me is that like Bonhoeffer, we would be willing to see difficulty for what it is and to embrace the joy that comes from knowing a God who walks with us and knows intimately that kind of difficulty to the maximum degree. And that in relying on his love and care for us and submitting ourselves to his plan, we're gonna experience that joy and see the fruit of his plan fulfilled ultimately in his victory where everything will once again fall silent before King Jesus, our King. God bless you.